one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 914 for the week of Monday, November 6th, 2017. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. Good evening. It's uh, <laughs> going to be another busy night here, but uh, looking forward to digging in and uh, getting this uh, party started. That is an understatement and a half. <laughs> and uh, welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. It's good to be back on standard time again. Oh, yes, it is. But uh, I'll tell you, there's nothing standard about this group. (laughs) Kat Robinson is under the weather, and we hope that she feels better and hope that she gets back soon. But in the meantime, the three gentlemen of Talking Spacer instead of Verona will proceed onward. And so we're going to start things off with our typical launch roundup. Yeehaw, which is uh, busier than ever nowadays. So we're going to start off with the most recent launch to this recording date. And this was a launch that happened on Tuesday, November 8th, 2017. A Vega rocket successfully launched with a satellite for the Moroccan government. That launch happened out of the Guiana Space Center in South America. The Mohammed 6A optical imaging craft, named for a Moroccan king, lifted off at 8.42 p.m. Eastern Time, which was 1.42 GMT Wednesday, out of French Guiana. The launch was deemed a success, and this is one of the first big launches ever from Morocco. Yes, sir, indeed. And again, this is uh, another good one for Ariane Space. The uh, the Vega has been so far a pretty good workhorse for them. And again, I think this put, puts Morocco on the map. So you know, hats off to the folks over there, and hats off again to uh, Ariane Space for another uh, good, successful launch out of the uh, Kourou uh, French Guiana complex. Exactly. This was the third successful Vega launch this year and the 11th successful launch since it began its career out of the Guiana Space Center. So another reliable rocket joining in the ranks. And for another, well, I don't know if reliable rocket is the word, we're going to go out to China. They have had about three major failures in the last year or so, and uh, their rockets are finally making it back into space. So they began with a launch of their smaller rocket last month, but this month China has returned with their slightly larger Long March 3B rocket. That, according to Chinese officials, launched successfully this past Sunday. This was after a June 19th failure of the same rocket type that left a satellite in a lower-than-planned orbit. However, this one successfully lifted off at 6.45 a.m. Eastern Time Sunday, which is 11.45 GMT, from the Zhichang Space Center in southwestern China. Uh, again, everything appeared to perform exactly as planned This from the Chinese government themselves. So they've got their 2B flying again, their 3B flying again. However, the 
5, which was their heavy, which also failed, has yet to launch since. But uh, at least it's launching again, and they did release a cause for it. Apparently it was a roll control error on the rocket's third stage, which led to the ChinaSat-9A satellite to deploy in lower-than-planned orbit. Although it did have enough fuel on board to make it into the planned orbit, it lowered the life expectancy because now it has a lot less fuel. Yeah, sorry, that was the, uh, the, the did they ever go, come about and explain uh, about the other failure? Because I was looking at uh, uh, one of the Chinese uh, newspapers trying to find that and I, I couldn't. Again, for the Long March 3B, they announced that. All the other ones, I have not seen anything on, especially the Long March 5, their heavy launch vehicle. So, hmm, curiouser and curiouser. Hopefully, they'll go ahead and maybe, if we're lucky, and you know the creek doesn't rise, we'll we'll get something out of them. But uh, I'm not going to hold my breath. I mean, it is China. We don't expect to hear a lot from them typically. But again, they did announce what happened with their 3B at least, and uh, that I believe marks 25 satellites that they have launched so far in their current. Baidu fleet. Yeah, and uh, you know, so far, hopefully they'll they'll, they'll get their uh, heavy lift booster together and uh, and start getting out there. They've got a, some pretty ambitious plans going forward. Um, one of the other things, though, that I'm not going to go ahead and mention. Well, well, why not? I'll mention it. Is the um, the Chinese space station their first one? Uh, Heavenly Palace One. I'm not going to go ahead and try to go ahead and pronounce the Chinese uh, pronunciation of it. But uh, again, it, they've lost contact with that thing, and unfortunately, I think we might have another Skylab situation on our on our hands. Uh, we still don't really know where this thing is going to come down, but uh, we'll just keep an eye on things and uh, you know see what happens with this. But again, this is going to be kind of chancy. From what I understand, it can land any time between now and I believe it was February or March of next year, and in any location pretty much around the world. So. Yeah, here we go. It's you know the Skylab Skylab Mark Two. The sky is but, falling um, again. Yeah, and there a friend of mine uh, by the name of Michael Lister. He's a good space law attorney, and he writes a, a really interesting newsletter. He had a very provocative article about uh, about that uh, particular problem and that particular possibility for a mishap and who's responsible from a legal aspect and so on. So, if you do subscribe. You know, uh, be sure to, to, to pick that up and uh, take a look at that. I believe the uh, name of the magazine is called The uh, the Priestess. So if you don't don't subscribe, do it. I'm putting in a plug for him. But uh, read the, the synopsis he wrote up. It's, it's really interesting. Exactly. So uh, get your crash helmets out and uh, party like it's uh, Skylab time again. <laughs> I'll, I'll start selling um, uh, construction helmets with the emblem of the space station. And umbrellas on. and, yeah, all the, yeah, all the yeah. stuff. You know, stuff that'll protect you. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, in case you didn't notice it, right before Halloween on uh, All Hallows' Eve, the night before, the sky was indeed falling, but it was supposed to do that. And that was another SpaceX launch, the third SpaceX launch in three weeks, successfully took off on October 30th. That was the Koreasat 5A mission, which took off at 3.34 p.m. Eastern Time from Launch Complex 39A at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. The mission went into perfectly clear blue skies, delivered the satellite into orbit, and landed successfully on a barge in the Atlantic Ocean called, of course, I Still Love You. 
And uh, it must still love it because this was one fiery landing. Uh, the video feed cut out slightly before touchdown, but as it came back, it looked like the bottom was quite on fire, which is okay. It's meant to happen like that. There's, if you've ever seen the video, there's actually hoses you can see aimed right at it to help cool it down. But boy, did that look toasty. Yeah, even the commentator made a, made, made a similar comment. Basically, it, it, it looked a little toasty to him, too, but uh, it's down, it's intact, and uh, that's that's really all that mattered. Uh, SpaceX is starting to make this look, you know, embarrassingly easy. Um, <laughs> one of the other thing, too, and, and something we talked about at the beginning of the year, I believe, uh, one of the predictions they wanted to make was that they were going to have 20 launches this year. Now, I kind of was like, yeah, well, I'll believe it when it, when it happened, they are on a cadence. I mean, here we are, what, um, you know, the middle of November, and they still have the possibility of, of attaining that goal. Right. This was their 16th successful launch this year out of 16 launches and their 13th successful landing this year out of 13 attempts. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they are well on, on that cadence. And if they do make the 20 launches uh, in 2017, you know, I'm just going to go, oh, waiter, one, order a crow here, please. Um, and, uh, and and just wipe the egg off my face and say congratulations. And you know, as we go on, Sawyer, uh, they've got some really big launches coming up. And we're going to be talking about those a little later. But uh, there's one of them that's going to be a real big challenge. And we'll get to that also a little bit later here in the in the program. So hang on. Exactly. And there's a lot coming up with that. So let's move on to our final launch of the past launch roundup before we move on to the upcoming launches and uh that's uh same old rocket new name you may know of the taurus rocket series well it is now orbital atk's revamped minotaur c and that successfully lifted off out of vandenberg air force base the launch was a halloween launch on tuesday october 31st happening 2 37 p.m pacific time which is 5 37 eastern 2137 GMT. The countdown to the launch went perfectly successful, launching 10 commercial Earth observing satellites into orbit. Do you know anything about uh, the Taurus to Minotaur C conversion, Gene? Yeah, one of the things that they did was they expanded the, uh, the fairing on the uh, Minotaur C as opposed to the, the old Taurus. Uh, I believe the Taurus had something like, I want to say, 63-inch diameter payload fairing. And they found out that actually that pay payload fairing for the size of the vehicle was just inadequate. And that caused part of the problems that they were having with uh, with the Taurus. They expanded the, the, uh, the shroud to a 92-inch shroud. And that apparently, judging by the success of the... Uh, of uh, launching uh, the uh, six uh, Skysats and the four Doves for Planet. It went off without a hitch. Uh, and uh, so that seemed to bring uh, bring Minotaur C back into um, back into the fold, or the renamed, uh, the renamed booster back into the fold. So I believe, too, that uh, just for a, for a little bit of a history here, Antares was originally called Taurus II. And uh, it too had a, had some growing pains as well, and so they kind of uh, renamed it and rebadged it Antares after uh, after fixing some of the issues they had initially with with that vehicle as well. So 
Apparently, the Taurus is, is maybe great for a, a certain uh, car company, but the badge doesn't quite work for rockets. And uh, so I think uh, Orbital ATK has kind of retired that and, and, and moved on to some more popular badges for their uh, for their two vehicles. Yeah, I know it's um, had a, a rough history, quite a few lost missions, including some for NASA. So it's uh, it's good to see it rebranded, refixed and launching successfully. So that moves us on to our upcoming launches in our launch roundup, and uh, there's quite a few. So we'll stay out at Vandenberg Air Force Base for the time being, and we'll talk about the penultimate Delta II launch. The next to last launch of the Delta II is now moved to November 14th. It was originally scheduled for November 10th, however, they had to change out a battery on board the rocket, so launch is now scheduled for November 14th out of Slick 2 West at Vandenberg Air Force Base. Launch time is a window that opens up between 4.47 and 4.48 a.m. Eastern Time. Yes, that is a one-minute launch window. That's uh, 1.47 to 1.48 a.m. Local Time or 9.47 to 9.48 GMT. This will be carrying the JPSS-1 mission, the Joint Polar Satellite System, part of NOAA's next-generation polar orbiting weather satellites. Again, this is for uh, for used for uh, severe weather prediction and uh, environmental monitoring. The, the data is uh, kind of critical for timeliness and accuracy of forecasts. And the, the, uh, the satellite's going to give you know, maybe three to seven days in advance of a severe weather event. So that's that's something very, very special and something really, really needed by weather forecasters. And uh, again, I believe, Sawyer, if I'm not mistaken, this is the, uh, as you mentioned, the penultimate mission for uh, for the Delta II. Delta II's had one heck of a nice history. It's uh, it's had its issues too, but it's also had a very good long string of success and uh, it's, it's going to be sad to see this booster go, but um, it's it, it, in the same booster class as, as uh, Antares. But uh, again, it, it's, it's lofted uh, a few NASA uh, probes to Mars, and it's had just quite a, an illustrious history. So uh, uh, again, good luck to uh, the next to last Delta II. Good luck to uh, uh, United Launch Alliance and uh, go JPSS-1. Exactly. I know we talked, I think it was last episode, about the amazing accomplishments of the Delta II and how many famous missions it's launched. And uh, this is going to be uh, a big one as it nears the end. And this is a 7920 configuration, which basically means all of them start with seven. That means nine solid rocket boosters. <laughs> yep. Nah. Oh, I missed that about the Delta II. And uh, no third stage. So once again, that's scheduled for November 14th. And best of luck on that one. So we're going to work our way eastward now, and uh, we're not going to go down to Florida just yet. We're going to move over to Wallops Island, Virginia, and Mars, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport. Coming up, even before the Delta II launch, is the launch of OA-8, the resupply mission to the International Space Station aboard an orbital ATK Antares rocket carrying the Cygnus resupply vehicle. It's been quite a while since we've seen a Cygnus launch, but... Uh, all of them on board the Antares for the rest of their time. It actually the the name of the mission is OA8E, um, E for extended, um, which is essentially this is the extended CRS-1 contract that NASA put together uh, to make sure that they had enough uh, logistics and enough uh, breathing room, if you will, for between the first set of contracts and and the second set of contracts, which. 
uh, I believe it starts, I think, if I'm not mistaken, about 2019 or so. Um, again, that's going to be covering uh, both Orbital ATK, uh, SpaceX, and Sierra Nevada this time. Um, but um, if for this particular mission, uh, this uh, particular Cygnus spacecraft uh, will be on the uh, Antares 230 uh, launch vehicle. Uh, the, the Antares 230 kind of proved itself really, really worthy during uh, the uh, OA-5 uh, launch. Almost around the same time last year. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was sometime in, in October of last year. We were there to, to cover that. Um, this particular uh, vehicle is named after uh, the late astronaut Gene Cernan. So the SS Gene Cernan is going to be carrying uh, quite a payload to the, uh, to the ISS, about 7,400 pounds of science, research, crew supplies, vehicle transfer for hardware to, uh, to the ISS. And launch time, I believe, is targeted for 7.37 a.m. Um, on Veterans Day. Here in the United States, November 11th, uh, 2017, and that's going to be quite a show. If anybody's um, up around the uh, the eastern seaboard, you're going to be able to, to see this launch. So uh, get on out there and and take a look. That's 12:37 GMT, 7:37 AM Eastern Time at a pad zero A. Yep, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna keep an eye on for you and bring you the latest. But uh, so far, so far it looks looks like things are planned up. Uh, it, I looked at uh, Twitter before coming on here, Sawyer, and it looks like uh, the little swan is packed up inside the uh, Antares uh, two thirty fairing, and is uh, getting ready to be integrated and then rolled out to uh, Pad Zero A uh, to uh, to to uh, go ahead, be stood up, and. Uh, and get ready for uh, for the uh, for the launch on Saturday. It looked like too that again because of what they saw on um, OA5, they got a lot more power out of the new RD191s that they're using for um, for Antares. These engines, I believe, are for actually for the uh, the Russian Angara booster, but. Um, uh, they're being used now for uh, our purposes for Antares, replacing the old AJ-26, which was a factor in the uh, the explosion from 2014. But um, again, this is going to be the heaviest, I believe, the, the heaviest payload that uh, Antares has carried too. So this is it's going to be kind of interesting to watch. It's going to be an interesting uh, flight up and. For folks that are out there that are watching this, you might want to go ahead and watch this because this might be a little different. Um, this launch of Antares just might be slightly different because of the, the, the heavier payload. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've been pushing this back for months just so they can keep filling up with more and more supplies and more and more science. So Yeah, and, and there's some pretty interesting science on board. Uh, there's a few CubeSats that uh, Cygnus is going to launch after she leaves the ISS. They'll probably put her in a little bit of a higher orbit and get the, you know, kick out the, the CubeSats and and then bring them back down to uh, to the appropriate orbit. Uh, there's a really cool um, demonstration about uh, laser communications. Uh, there's a, a very, very interesting uh, student experiment that's flying on board. Um, there's even a uh, E. coli uh, mission that's part of the CubeSat array that's that's going to uh, take a look at, uh, believe it or not, it's taking, taking a look at urinary tract problems in humans and um, antibiotic resistance to those. And uh, because, well, heck, I mean, antibiotic uh, resistance 
could pose a danger to our astronauts going forward, especially in uh, in microgravity conditions. And that's basically what this particular uh, experiment is going to go ahead and investigate. So, um, again, good for our astronauts, but also has implications for our own health back here on Earth. So, again, uh, a science-packed mission, but also packed up with, um, I believe, I'm, I'm just going to really, really check here the... Uh, um, the entire rundown here, uh, I believe 2,740 pounds of crew supplies, 1,461 pounds of scientific investigations, 310 pounds of crew equipment, 2,054 pounds of vehicle hardware, and if I'm reading this right, 75 pounds of computer resources. So total cargo on this particular mission is going to be 7,385.5 pounds. A lot of stuff going to, going to support your International Space Station, folks. It's a great thing, though. Again, a lot of science comes out of the ISS, and if you need any proof of that, listen to any of our interviews that we've done over the past eight years on ISS science, of which... We've done plenty because every time we do a story on it, a few months later, there's more great experiments coming out. So just look up ISS Science on our website or through our feeds, and you'll see plenty of stories that are just as cool as these. And uh, this is going to add to the list. I'm excited to hear more about these uh, experiments as the mission goes on. So now we move on to the next mission, which I wish I could tell you more about. I really can't, other than this is the Falcon 9 Zuma mission. We talked about it last time, how it randomly appeared on the schedule about a month beforehand, sandwiched in between two missions, Koreasat and an upcoming resupply mission, and that all we were able to find out from the launch license and everything, it is a Northrop Grumman payload. It is being called Zuma, and not a single other bit of information has been disclosed. All that we do know is it will include a return to landing zone one for the first stage, and it is scheduled to launch on the 15th of November uh, between 8 and 10 p.m. Eastern time, which is between 1 and 3 GMT on the 16th. That's all we can tell you right now. Yeah, this is this one just kind of morphed on the schedule, and I believe, sorry, we talked about it a little bit the last time. And uh, uh, we kind of both said, okay, this is interesting. Uh, it's obviously, you know, it, it comes, I think, from north of Grumman, if I'm not mistaken. And this was a, I believe, that's all they're saying. <laughs> it <laughs> <Exactly>. is a <laughs> yeah. classified payload. So it's most likely going to be some form of military payload. So it's on behalf of right. the U.S. government. And it's made by Northrop Grumman. And it's being called Zuma right now, and it's launching the 15th. That's literally the only information we can get out of SpaceX right now on this one. Yeah, and, and that's probably all the information you're going to get out of SpaceX and Northrop Grumman at this point. Although I'm sure that once the the vehicle is launched, you're going to go ahead. There's going to be a bunch of people already, you know, a bunch of amateurs going ahead, working out the, uh, the orbit and so on. And by the orbit, I think we could probably you know, engage in some interesting speculation as far as what this thing is for. But uh, again, it's probably something that, uh, you know, we need for our own purposes and our own defense and 
to make sure either a treaty is being complied with or something. So I'm not even going to even even poke a stick in that direction. Uh, and again, this means SpaceX is pretty much on track, possibly to get that 20 launch moniker under their belt. However, I think Sawyer, they've got one more sitting uh, out there that we really need to talk about. <laughs> All right, so uh, obviously we'll keep an eye on that, and we'll tell you anything that we can, which isn't going to be much more, but uh, we'll keep an eye on that. The next launch that is currently scheduled out of Launch Complex 39A is now no earlier than December 29th, and that is the first ever Falcon Heavy. Apparently, everything is uh, getting finalized and assembled inside the Horizontal Integration Facility. Uh, There will be some downtime, which will allow them to make the final modifications to the launch pad, and we now have an official no earlier than date other than third quarter or end of year or anything like that. It's the first time we've ever had an actual day of launch. So December 29th, 2017 is now the current no earlier than date for Falcon Heavy. Hey, Sawyer and, and gang, everybody, I'm just going to go ahead and throw this on the table for everybody to kind of, you know, chew on a little bit. Uh, Falcon Heavy was first announced, I believe, in 2012. Uh, they predicted the first launch out of Vandenberg Air Force Base the end of that year or the beginning of 2013. Here we are, 2017. I guess somebody found out that it wasn't you know, that easy just to throw um, three Falcon 9s together, tie them up, strap them together, and launch them. Uh, that there were significant challenges to that to that event. I'm just gonna throw throw this out there for the entire group to comment on. What do you think the odds are of meeting the December 29th date for that particular launch, or if they do mean it meet it, the odds of success for meeting it? I'm gonna go with slim to none, and slim just left on an Atlas V rocket. <laughs> okay, Mark, what do you think? Yeah, I'll go with uh, next spring. Wow, I, <laughs> why next spring? Because may I, if, if I I'm going with my opinion, it's going to be that they're going to plan for it. Something's going to come up during the static fire test, which is set for mid December, and that's going to push it into January or February of 2018. What makes you say spring? Just give them a couple extra months to play. Okay, I I can see that. I Mark, I can too. Actually, if if they find something really weird. Uh, they're going to have to push this. And I know they've got clients waiting for this particular booster, but I'm with you guys. I mean, I'm hedging my bets, but I don't think they're going to, I don't think we're going to see Falcon Heavy uh, in, in 2017. That's, you heard it here. And by the way, if this thing does go in spring of 2018, which it still might, you heard it here first. (laughs) Courtesy of Mark Ratterman. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of your other question of if it does go thoughts on success, remember Elon was the one who originally said if it makes it past the launch pad and doesn't destroy it, that's a success. So if we're going off of that as a marker, I think it'll be successful. Uh, With any new rocket, there's always going to be some form of glitch, something that doesn't go perfectly right, and that's why they're not launching it with a full payload. If you remember, the first Falcon 9 carried a block of cheese. Uh, this one is going to be carrying something similar. They haven't said what, but it's a dummy payload. And uh, I don't know. Uh, something is going to go wrong, I think. I think it'll still make it into space. But again, it's taken them five years to figure out how to stick three Falcon 9s together. Something's inevitably going to go wrong, as we've seen before with SpaceX, unexpectedly. And we'll talk a little bit more about <laughs> later. But um, 
you know, I, I'm hopeful that it goes well. And uh, I definitely don't think it's going to destroy the pad. I think it's going to go off. What happens beyond that, uh, pardon the pun, is up in the air. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm wishing them well, but I'm, I'm hoping we don't have a, you know, a, a CRS-7 kind of situation. Agreed. After all of this hype for the last five years, for there to be an explosion of any kind, I, I think would be catastrophic to their image, at least. I mean, they'll still have the Falcon 9, at least, but, y you know. And of course, we always want it to succeed. Uh, that's the whole point of this space industry is to get these bigger, better rockets up and going and to be able to launch more payloads. And like you said earlier, we're already eating crow for our comments at the beginning of the year at SpaceX, and we're happy to do it. And I'm hoping we get to eat it again on Falcon Heavy. But uh, after seeing SpaceX enough times and seeing this happen before with other companies, not just SpaceX, uh, I'm at an I'll believe it when I see it point once again, unfortunately, with Heavy. Yeah, and but uh, uh, just to throw this out there and and to to play the other end of it, I remember going to the Antares A1 launch back in 2013, and the emphasis was over there was saying, "Hey, this is a test flight. We still don't really, you know, this is the first time this vehicle has flown. We still don't have an idea whether whether or not this is going to work. We're we're hoping thing to have a good day, but if we have a bad day here." you know, we'll just go back to the drawing board and, and figure things out. And I suspect that if SpaceX has a bad day on the 29th, then they're able to go ahead and get this thing off the pad. Uh, they'll sit there, they'll analyze the data, and they will come back and try it again in, as soon as they figure out what went wrong. So, uh, again, um, I'm... I'm cautiously optimistic but i'm i'm actually with you guys i just don't see that the, the 29th happening exactly and we're open to your thoughts what do you think is going to happen you can always email us mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com tweet us now that there's 280 characters to tweet us with at talking space we also have our facebook page and google plus where we are talking space oh the 280 character thing please <laughs> oh the agony of some of the stuff i've seen out there but anyway uh, that that's that's the story for another day let's yeah moving on <laughs> this isn't a twitter podcast this is a space podcast so <laughs> talking twitter is another show i think i think that's copyrighted so yep <laughs> Anyway, we're continuing along then. The reason they're finally getting to work on the launch pad for 39A and give it some time off is that Space Launch Complex 40, which if you recall was lost in an explosion last year after the Amos 6 mission, is back up and operational and will have its first mission on December 4th with a Falcon 9 carrying the CRS-13 mission. That is a Dragon spacecraft resupplying the International Space Station. Launch is currently scheduled for December 4th at 2.52 p.m. Eastern Time, 19.52 GMT, keeping in mind that is an instantaneous launch window. That will be a landing zone one landing for the first stage, and as mentioned, the first launch out of Space Launch Complex 40 in more than a year. Yeah, this is going to be, it's going to be good to see that launch pad back up and running again, but it's also going to be good to see it, uh, uh, supporting the International Space Station again. I'm, I'm not exactly too sure what their uh, what the the uh, the manifest is for CRS-13, um, but again, it, it's a logistics run, and it will uh, be carrying again a lot of science and a lot of supplies. And again, just just to reiterate, Dragon is the only way, at least right now, we're getting down mass from from the ISS. 
meaning that uh, Dragon is uh, is the only only vehicle that can go ahead and bring experiments back down from the International Space Station, so they can be offloaded, given to the re researchers to do some post-experimental work and and really really get some sig significant science done. So. Um, Getting this vehicle up there is also just as critical as uh, getting the uh, the SS Gene Cernan up there too. So, uh, and I think SpaceX knows it. So they're really, really trying to satisfy their customer, and really, which is us, the American taxpayer, and get uh, get some good science up there and bring some good science back home. So again, good luck and uh, go CRS thirteen. Exactly. Now, as we mentioned, uh, the reason that it's been a commission is the Amos six failure last year. Well, the company behind Amos 6, Israel's Spacecom, has decided to launch again, and they are sticking with SpaceX. SpaceX, after their launch failure, offered them a $50 million credit, approximately, to help pay for a mission aboard another SpaceX rocket, and they're taking it. And according to Spaceflight Now, it appears as if they will be using a reused booster so a previously flown first stage to carry their new spacecraft which is now amos 17 don't ask me what happened to 7 through 16 but amos 17 is now going to be scheduled to launch sometime in 2019 into geostationary orbit aboard another falcon 9 and uh i mean that's pretty crazy considering how much it cost them to rebuild everything and all the issues with you know there's blowing up on the pad, and there were some concerns that uh, insurance might be an issue since it wasn't in flight. So there was a lot going on with that, and yet here we are. The, they're choosing SpaceX again. What do you think that says? Well, it says I think SpaceX probably gave them a sweetheart deal not to lose the lose the business and saying pretty much. I mean, sorry, you and I were, were talking about this offline a little bit before before we uh, we hit the record button. Uh, we learned, too, that uh, it looks like the company was totally on the hook for the satellite because of the fact that it was not a uh, in-flight mishap, that the mishap occurred while the vehicle was still on the ground and still being being fueled and pressurized. So that's bad news for uh, for the company because they had to eat the cost of the cost of the satellite. However, I'm sure SpaceX did some deal sweetening to make sure that uh, um, you know they basically were able to go ahead and come back to them and say, hey, you know, we'll if if you stick with us, we'll we'll give you this one. Basically, we the way things look as far as the insurance. So I believe the article talked a little bit about this because of the insurance and all this, the, that they're just about getting this launch. Um, the company is anyway, almost almost free of charge. I mean, that's a big deal, but think about it. Let's, you know, there are times where something happens with a company and they offer you, you know, free incentives to come back. And I've said, no, I'm not coming back, you know, after how terribly I was treated or how bad the service was or whatever the case may be, that it's not worth the, uh, the aggravation and everything, cough, cough, American Airlines. But, you know... <laughs> <laughs> it, it, or in my case, <clears throat> Airbnb. <clears throat> but anyway. But, you know, it's, yeah. even with incentives and things they offer you, there are times where you just say, you know what? It was so bad, I'm not going to do it again. If you're them, you know, there was a lot of riding on this launch. And, you know, sure, they're giving you most of the rocket cost back, but that's a lot of money still. And if that blows up again, you know, 
that's i mean i'm glad they're launching with them again it's just and with the other launch cadence picking up and everything i'm just honestly a bit surprised yeah i i because you know i'd be a little gun shy because of not so much because the thing failed uh i would be a little gun shy because of the uh the way my payload was treated uh, if i recall exactly the reason why we lost the payload in the first place was because it was atop the vehicle during a a fire test you know a test fire of the uh, of the engines for for the launch and that's kind of un, unprecedented um so i guess somebody along the line in in spacex decided hey maybe if we really really try to sweeten the deal we can keep a client and and keep them happy and i think that's probably what happened in this case and it prob they probably just made uh made these folks an offer they couldn't refuse <laughs> and uh and they came back so so again it, it it's good business savvy on on the part of spacex but you know again it it's also kind of interesting that they were able to woo this client back after just a you know a really really dropping the ball badly Yes, which since then they've changed the way they do their static fires. They no longer do it with a payload on board. But anyway, again, we'll uh, have to keep an eye out for that mission, though, still. And uh, they're going to give it another try. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, once that uh, goes off in 2019, either hopefully we'll be there or we'll, uh, we'll be bringing uh, the, the information to you uh, when it happens. But uh, again, hats off to, to SpaceX for trying to, to keep its customers happy. And uh, we'll just see how that all works out. But uh, yeah, I, I would love, would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during those negotiations. Oh yes, uh, me too. Oh, I mean, you know, I, I really would have, would have loved to have seen what was going on and what the, the input was from, from, from SpaceX, and the input to, the, to, the, to the company too. So, again, um, again, hats off to both. Good luck, and we'll see how this goes. Oh, yeah. And uh, again, this is going to be big since their last one uh, ended in a big fireball. So best of luck to them, which uh, that was about a year ago. Uh, they had an explosion about a year before that with uh, CRS-7. Uh, they had some issues testing their landing boosters before that out of McGregor with some explosions. And uh, well, unfortunately, we've had another one. <laughs> Reports were starting to come in about this on Tuesday, but the official details have finally come in today. According to the Washington Post and The Verge and a few other sources that I've spoken to, um, one of the engines that was being tested at SpaceX's McGregor testing facility in Texas failed in explosive fashion during a test fire. This was a qualification test of one of the Merlin engines that was meant to be used during a Falcon 9 launch in late 2018. No one was injured, and most importantly, they say that this will in no way affect their launch cadence rate, which is amazing. The big thing behind that is the fact that this was a test for the Block 5 Falcon 9. In case you're unaware, they've been improving the Falcon 9 bit by bit, and as they do so, they give it a new block type. The current block type is Block 4, which is testing some of the concepts that will be used during the Block 5. It's sort of an intermediary step right now. And uh, each of these increase its launch rate and its uh, speed and its launch capability and its thrust. So uh, they were trying to get it higher thrust to lift heavier payloads into farther orbits. And uh, obviously that's going to push some of these engines to their limit. Uh, as a result, the test stand that it was on was damaged badly. Uh, a neighboring test stand also suffered minor damage. 
Uh, as a result, the test stand that it was on is going to be out for probably about a month, and uh, the other test stand incurred only minor damage, and that will be out for two to three days. The Block 4 engine testing will still continue for all of the upcoming Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy launches. However, the Block 5 engine testing is currently suspended. Anytime you have an engine failure, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to pl play devil's advocate here for a little bit. Um, and I know there's got to be some sort of cross-pollination between the two components. Um, it, it, to me, it would be a good idea to get a full understanding of what happened before I, I, I lit another engine. And uh, because if there is, is any any component sharing, that component could be the possible issue as to why you lost the vehicle um, or l why you lost the engine and your test stand looks like something that came out of a modern art project. <laughs> but um, I mean, part of it is not so much the engines that's being used. It's the fuel tanks and things like that. The um, the full titanium uh, grid fins are part of that upgrade as well to work its way up to block five, which are now out of one solid piece as opposed to being manufactured of other materials. So, you know, it, it's things like that more so than, you know, the full rocket itself being all block five or the engines being you know used between them it's more of they're upgrading everything yeah again I, i'm just just throwing that out there i mean i'm not a, a rock you know i'm not an engine uh, uh rocket engine aficionado i i am not a uh, rocket engine engineer by any stretch of the imagination but i would think that there were some shared components between the two and i'm, I'm just you know, gonna throw that out there for uh, and again this is just me speculating but uh, I'm concerned. The good news out of all of this is nobody was hurt. And uh, I'm sure somebody over at SpaceX is going to be charged to figure out just what went wrong. Thing is, it's better to, to lose an engine, especially in a spectacular fashion like, like what happened and what you're describing, Sawyer. It's better to lose an engine like that on a test stand. Absolutely. And, uh, that's why they're called test stands. <laughs> and, um, you know, so this way you could sit back you know, clean clean up the mess, and then go ahead, take a look at the data, see what went wrong, and really track down the pesky component that that kind of failed, and then go back and 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 try to try to see uh, what you can do to make to put it right. But um, is this a setback? Yeah, hey Mark, we had this conversation before, and and I think you had some you had a very interesting piece of insight. <laughs> on that probably shouldn't say because <laughs> it makes me sound too consistently like a grouch uh, well heck look at me but you know i'm i'm trying to you know be devil's advocate here but okay we'll, we'll let that slide <laughs> it's something we kind of alluded to in our intro but yeah <laughs> well it was a uh... Do you have any thoughts that you do wish to share on this, Mark, or are you going to try and keep silent on this one? Well, <laughs> <laughs> so tempting. Go um, ahead. You know, we're... Yeah, well, you know, growing pains. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, I'll let All it right. go. I will mention a quote from uh, SpaceX's communications person, John Taylor who said to The Verge, quote, We are now conducting a thorough and fully transparent investigation of the root cause. 
and that SpaceX is committed to our current manifest, and we do not expect this to have any impact on our launch cadence. So uh, we'll certainly keep an eye on that thorough and transparent investigation on this. And uh, again, Block 5 was supposed to start working its way into rotation relatively soon. So it seems like that may get pushed back. But again, they have Block 4. They've got plenty of stuff. So uh, it sounds like their launch rate will continue, especially since there's four more launches scheduled for this year alone. So... Uh, we're going to move on and just mention very quickly that uh, there were two launches that were now scheduled for 2020 time frame, uh, and that was two Earth-observing satellites. One of them went to SpaceX, and one of them went to United Launch Alliance. The two missions were the Sentinel-6A slash Jason-CS and the Landsat-9 satellites, which are set to launch in 2020 and 2021 aboard a Falcon 9 and an Atlas V, respectively. Yeah, not surprised that um, uh, Jason went to uh, SpaceX and uh, USGS stuck with Atlas for um, for Landsat. So, um, Sawyer, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the last Jason flight also flew on a Falcon 9, correct? That is correct. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not surprised uh, to see that. And the USGS and NASA seems to be very, very happy with the way ULA has been... Uh, conducting their service for uh, for the past uh, Landsat satellites, so I'm not really, really too surprised to see ULA get that contract. Exactly, and uh, both launches appear to be scheduled currently out of Vandenberg Air Force Base, and both going into a polar orbit and uh, observing satellites, and we'll certainly keep an eye out on those missions, but uh, just thought we'd mention that uh, we're not forgetting about ULA. They're in the mix, too, and uh, SpaceX, their manifest continues to grow. So now we're going to switch away from private space and uh, we're going to go to the NASA side for a little bit. As you know, Jim Bridenstine has been one of the uh, contenders for the NASA administrator position after Charlie Bolden left with the administration change. Uh, and we've talked about his nomination in the past, and so far he has moved his way through the Senate on to the next steps in his steps to approval. Prior to that, though, there was a very interesting hearing uh, with Bridenstine and uh, some members of our uh, lovely government. And uh, it, they, if I remember correctly, they asked all the questions they should ask of a NASA administrator. They were well-informed on NASA's uh, current objectives and goals, and everything was well... Okay, I'm just kidding. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sawyer, so I actually was um, listening in on, on that whole thing. I kind of wish I was watching it because some people were, were telling me about some stuff that was going on behind the scenes. But uh, it was two plus hours of really, really hard grilling questions that had, well, for the most part, had really nothing to do with actually being the NASA administrator. NASA is, a, is an agency that has a, uh, almost a $19 billion portfolio of work and has some challenges, some, some significant challenges that we're going to be talking about a little later uh, ahead of it. And uh, everything between, you know, the SLS and Orion portfolio, the planetary science portfolio, which has got its significant challenges. Was there a question about, you know, plutonium-238? Was there a question about uh, the challenges that Europa Clipper faces because of people trying to rewrite the, the vehicle requirements at the last second? Was there any questions about, oh, this the, the full-up situation that NASA's facing with SLS and Orion and the challenges there, commercial cargo, commercial crew? 
any of the facilities challenges that NASA has. Um, NASA is, has a very, very finite pool of, uh, of resources that it can, can allocate for such activities. But you would think that you had a whole group of senators over there that actually allocate the money to the agency and talk about the challenges and how uh, Mr. Uh, Bridenstine would handle those challenges. Nope, nothing like that. It, it, was, it was more of his thoughts on whether or whether or not humans are contributing to any type of uh, climate upheaval, about his thoughts on LGBTQ uh, rights and what his, his, his thoughts were about that particular community in any type of harassment cases that might come up. Um, it was thoughts about how, um, the, how he would handle somebody that has um, scientific findings that are different from his own personal views. I mean, NASA historically has been nominated as the best place to work. I mean, indeed, there are there, there are challenges within the community. But Charlie Bolden used to talk about the NASA family. Um, other NASA administrators have done the same thing, and I think that's that's basically the way NASA views itself. And you try to treat members of the family right. And um, but that was the main focus of a lot of the questioning. It was not really going into a lot of the issues that surround the agency. The only one I think that really, really brought up anything worth uh, talking about, um, although I believe there was a, a Colorado senator that also brought up the fact that uh, he wanted to know what his, his stance was on SLS and Orion and if he thought that was a, a, a worthy program to continue. Bill Nelson uh, from Florida, he first led on with some questions that I thought, you know, I was scratching my head and going, where the devil is this coming from? But then he kind of shifted gears a little bit and went into a little bit about uh, uh, Mr. Bridenstine's uh, tenure over at the Science Museum in um, Oklahoma that he served as executive director at and kind of tried to say, you know, he started out with a... Uh, with a surplus over there and uh, left the uh, the museum with a deficit. And um, Bridenstine basically said, well, a lot was going on. We were in the middle of a lot of refit fit projects. We were trying to put a bid in for one of the orbiters at the time. There were a few other projects that were going on, you know, that really, really required a lot of funding. And uh, thus, you know, was was that I see I, I see what Nelson where where Nelson was trying to go with that though he was trying to say look agencies have a finite set of money what kind of steward are you going to be of the public funds and he was trying to put that into some question and you know it, it was it was it was a legitimate question but that was one of the only questions um, that was really legitimately raised the rest of it was just. I mean, I almost wanted to hear Adlai Stevenson in the background saying, you know, don't wait for the translation, just answer me now, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, it was really, really grilling. And Bridenstine wasn't the only one there. There were like three others up there for uh, for questions uh, that had uh, uh, positions of uh, some note. I believe one of them was for uh, the NOAA administrator, and there was there were two other administrative positions up there of uh, of some scientific import. And Bridenstine was the one getting the lion's share of the questions. So I guess, I guess the, the moral of the story is to, you know, if you're going to go ahead and go in front of Congress, make sure that you're up with a controversial 
uh, administrator nominee, and that person will just go ahead and get all the questions while you can just sit there and sip water and just watch and eat popcorn and just watch the whole thing unfold. As Sawyer, you had mentioned, um, the hearing after two and a half hours was uh, was finally concluded, and today uh, the the Senate voted strictly along party lines to go ahead and move the nomination forward to the next step. Just again, I'm going to throw this out to everybody. Brenstein is the only nominee that I that has been mentioned uh, through the process. Uh, and again, the the guy's a former fi- fighter pilot. Uh, he is also the author of a bill that was going to essentially revamp the uh, the agency if it was considered and passed. I don't know if it was ever really really brought to the floor. But um, it, it had some significantly interesting features in there. Also, some features that mm, you know I, I that would eventually, I think, make planetary science kind of suffer. But uh, that, that's another story altogether. I think um, the bill lost sight of the fact that NASA's portfolio is, is very, very diverse. Uh, it is not just uh, human exploration. It's also, again, Earth science. It's also planetary science and planetary exploration. And I think um, what he was trying to do um, was kind of losing sight of that. But one of the features of that was that the NASA administrator have a, uh, have a 10-year appointment and that a decadal survey be set up for human spaceflight. And that's something that we've kind of kicked around here on this show a couple of times. And I don't know, I'm kind of leaning toward kind of liking the idea and uh, moving that forward. Uh, I mean, we've already have a, a decadal survey for planetary science that we kind of stick with. And there's a purpose behind each one, one of these things. I believe there's going to be a meeting in the not too distant future to discuss the next decade of uh, planetary science going forward and what should be done there. Um, but I don't know. Uh, I'm going to throw this out to the floor. Is is the next NASA administrator uh, Jim uh, Bridenstein, or or is it going to be uh, declined? And when it gets to a full vote, and and the administration's going to have to punt and start again. I think at this point, honestly, uh, they can't afford to have them not be approved and pushed through. And if they vote along party lines, they will certainly be put in which if anybody's aware in the past it pretty much always goes to someone who's a member of the president's party or if nothing else you know congress whatever is the majority there their party in this case that's both the republicans so there's an extremely high chance that a republican will get passed through and honestly you know of all the candidates that they could have picked he's not a terrible choice uh, i still see him as you know a, a potentially good option for nasa all things considered and, uh, you know, I just see them pushing them through. If they went right along party lines with this one, I think that's going to keep happening. And since it's already taken much longer than typical for an appointment to be made, I think they kind of have to push this through. And that's I try to be apolitical, but I know that sounded slightly political. Sorry, there, you have to be in slightly in, in, in this this kind of thing. I kind of I kind of agree with your assessment. I, I think they could you know, they could have done worse in this instance. And I think they could have we we discussed. I thought uh, uh, this wasn't too horrible of a choice. There were some other things, too, that Bridenstine is not a um, he's a politician and not a scientist. Well, you know, we've had bean counters up as NASA administrators before. We've had the best NASA administrator that we've, we've had of all time was a, was an attorney. So um, being a, uh, a scientist 
is not really required to go ahead and run this agency. You have to be a pretty good good administrator. You have to understand what's going on uh, and know what what questions to ask. But being you know a hardcore scientist, I don't think really really is a prerequisite. Uh, Mark, what do you, I'm going to throw this at you. Uh, any predictions? I don't think it really matters who's the administrator. You know, come back in five to ten years, maybe it'll make a difference at that point. You know, I'd be surprised if anything that happens until somewhere in the mid to late 20s is of any significance. That, I think, kind of says that. <laughs> um, We're, I'm talking figurehead yeah, at this point. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's what I was, I was, I was kind of getting at. I mean, it... I don't know. NASA's at a crossroads, and um, I think this this next administrator may make a significant impact on the agency. There's a lot on NASA's plate right now. There's a lot of challenges out there right now, and how this administrator is going to go approach those challenges, I don't know. We'll go into to some of those uh, when we discuss uh, another uh, another topic that came up, but. Uh, Again, I'm I'm thinking that this gentleman will be confirmed, but I'm also thinking too that um, that person is going to have quite a bit on his plate when he walks in the door. And I'm not talking politics. I'm really going from a perspective in in my mind that I think the uh, problem that NASA is going to have is going to be to some extent Capitol Hill, but also it's going to be the the culture of the United States. And if that changes. If we make some pretty significant course corrections in the near term, then everything could uh, become more critical as to who's administrator and how they're driving the bus. But until our culture kind of changes its mindset, that's the biggest part of why I'm saying I don't think it matters. I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate here just for a second. Do you kind of like, like define some of the cultural aspects that you're talking about? Because I just want to make sure I'm on the same page. Oh, well, you know, if we talk to people that are fans of space who have gotten their interest piqued by SpaceX and by other uh, accomplishments and, and changes, you know, in the last few years, you know, all of the people that are part of those audiences are interested in many, many things that go on. But that is a minority, I would say, of America, just like the percentage of the U.S. budget that goes to NASA is a uh, pretty small percentage. Lots of things pulling at people's attention these days. And space isn't the biggest. Get some headlines, get some interest. It's certainly higher than it used to be, thankfully. But uh, yeah, it's <laughs> it isn't the highest priority, and honestly, hasn't been the highest priority since probably I'd say late '69, early 1970. Right. So, and again, I think we're we're just trying to zero in on what exactly we want to do up there. All we want to do right now is just build cheap ways of getting there, but to what end? And that's something we're still kind of playing with. I know NASA's got its journey journey to Mars framework, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. But um, is that what we want to do? And I don't think we've really, really settled that argument yet. I know Bridenstine is very pro-lunar exploration, and I think so is this administration. Um, saying, and we, we've talked about this on, on, on the show before, but saying moon now in the offices of NASA is not a four-letter word. 
So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's looking more and more increasingly like we'll probably go to the moon first as a test bed to go to Mars. We already have the plans for the Deep Space Gateway in mind. That will be a, um, again, sort of a, um, a way station, if you will, for our journey to Mars um, and trying to see if we can push uh, humanity a little further away from, from, uh, from the gravity well. I think ultimately a visit back to the lunar surface is going to be critical uh, to getting back to Mars, and it looks increasingly like that that's, that may happen. We'll have to see. And honestly, I think a lot of that is going to depend on our next story, which I think we should move into now. And that involves the, uh, the progress of the SLS, the Space Launch System, NASA's next-generation rocket. Well, uh, when it comes to the SLS, uh, NASA made an announcement on... Uh, today's recording date, November 8th, 2017. They announced that they now have official plans for the first launch of the Space Launch System. We knew it was going to be sometime 2019. They are now putting a no earlier than date of December 2019. That's what they're hopeful for. But uh, there was also a review that was completed that said, uh, nah, bro, not gonna happen. <laughs> it sounds like it's more likely that uh, with all the possible delays and everything factored in, we're looking at June-ish of 2020. Oh, gosh, that is painful to say. Yeah, the, I'm looking at the press release now, Sawyer, and, and just to quote it, um, this is like, I guess, the third or fourth paragraph down. Quote, NASA's ability to meet its agency baseline commitments to the DEM-1 costs, which includes SLS and ground systems, meaning the, the you know the support systems that SLS is going to need to go ahead and, and launch, currently remains within the original targets. The cost for EM-1 up to a possible June 2020 launch date remains within the 15% limit for SLS and is slightly above for ground systems. Now, however, the, the recommendation, and, and we're going to get in, into this, this other report, is, is more like you, know, you probably want 30% and not 15%. Because for them, they say with the 15%, they can still do uh, June 2020 for sure, and uh, keeping in mind that cost commitment also then would lead to the first crewed mission in 2023 as of right now. Oh, well, you know, I mean, I, I, as much as I hate to say this, I think SLS is beginning to, to look like SpaceX's uh, Falcon Heavy. Uh, it just seems like, um, I mean, I, I, I really want to see this thing fly. SLS is absolutely critical for the journey to Mars. It's critical. It's, it, it is the linchpin for for NASA to go off and do a lot of exciting things, including get Europa Clipper to Europa in a three-year time period, which I believe, if you check the latest um, uh, launch manifest for SLS, Europa Clipper is kind of baked into that. So this isn't a paper rocket. I mean, the, 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 core, the core stage are there, the, the boosters are there. But if I can be honest, you compare this to the Falcon Heavy, but the Falcon Heavy we have hardware for. We have a rocket that's pretty much built and ready to go. This one, I mean, it, it's been pushed back more than five years, that's for sure. And uh, in that time, we still have only had a test flight of the Orion capsule. And uh, the next thing in the manifest is an April test of the abort uh, for Orion in 2019. 
And we're still not getting a rocket now for it looks like at least another two years. Well, you know, again, Sawyer, this 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 announcement is coming right on the heels of a report that was issued by NASA's own um, in, Inspector General's office uh, about the challenges that the that the space agency is going to be facing in long term. And uh, this was essentially a 33-page description of really what the Senate should have been asking Jim Bridenstein, but um, for some reason or other decided to go uh, on another path. Um, but again, it asks some very, very tough questions of the agency, not only about SLS, not only about Orion, but also about the space station also about commercial cargo, also about commercial crew, planetary missions, uh, facilities, that kind of thing, and and how the, the agency is going to go ahead and tackle this. But it had some very, very... Uh, I'm, I'm going to give you the two highlights that, that bother me with, with SLS and Orion, and not so much bother me with the space station, but, but kind of you're going to have to make some, some tough questions. You're going to have to answer some tough questions here as far as um, its long-term viability. It talks a little bit about, first, the journey of the Mars framework. Uh, it, it's very, very critical of that. According to the, um, to the report, it does not identify key systems required other than SLS, Orion, and the ground, ground systems in the deep space gateway. There's obviously some other things like a lander that might be a good thing. Um, it also doesn't suggest any target mission dates for crewed orbits or orbits of Mars or planetary surface landings. The report just basically says, look, if you're going to reach the goal of sending humans to Mars in the late 2030s or early 2040s, you're basically going to say you need significant development work, as it says here, on landing and ascent vehicles. You're going to have to accomplish that within the 2020 time frame. Um, there's some other things that you're going going to have to look into. Uh, the deep space habitat is another one that you're going to have to look to look at, um, not just in orbit, but on on the surface of another world. Does this thing work? You're going to have to look at uh, you know life support systems and so on and so forth. Um, and finally, a decision has to be made whether whether or not um, past 2024 to continue spending three to four billion dollars on the International Space Station annually. And that's one of the things that uh, they that, that they do bring up. They're talking about several technical challenges that are that are look, being looked at for EM1 that have been announced before. And you know because of those technical challenges, the, the mission's been pushed back to uh, November November of 2018 or October of 2019. Now we have summer of 2020 in the mix. Um, they're basically saying that uh, there have been some welding, as we've reported here, because of some welding issues on the on the core stage tanks. Um, again, this is a brand new kind of way of welding of uh, uh, a the core stage together. It's never been done before, uh, and it's a growing pain. But it is a significant delay here uh, if they can't make that work. Uh, so far, it looks like they're they're able to. But they have to study that and have to see what's going on. The other thing, too, is the, the tornado that hit Mashoud. And the report kind of mentions that, too, as a, as a critical path item. Um, 
the the other thing too there's there's very little margin of error to to go ahead and first do a full integration not only of the booster but also of the of an integration of of the entire SLS booster plus the um, the Orion the Orion on top of it so if any kind of kind of integration problems happen there isn't a lot of margin of error in the schedule to go ahead and and kind of play with that and make sure that that you know you're going to be able to overcome those those integration challenges that they also make the the observation that uh, the um, the SLS uh, may go ahead and exceed its 9.7 billion dollar budget commitment. Uh, the agency, according to the report, plans to spend roughly two billion dollars a year on SLS development, but has really, really got min minimal monetary reserves set aside for things for unexpected stuff. And uh, according to some guidance that was developed uh, over at the Marshall Space Flight Center. Uh, for a program like SLS, you should have anywhere between 10 and 30% um, of a monetary reserve um, set aside for, you know, the unexpected. Right now, you know, the SLS, according to the report here, didn't carry any reserve through fiscal 2015 and only a minimal reserve of in in uh, fiscal year 2016 that was 25 million that's actually one percent of the development budget so you know there's some some uh, some really really significant problems there um it also talked about some of the challenges with with orion the nasa ig estimated that they have that nasa has devoted approximately 17 billion dollars in funding for all Orion activities, and that's, by the way, dating to 2006 when um, Orion was still part of the Constellation program. And they expect to, to reach that $17 billion uh, funding level when the spacecraft makes its first flight for EM-2. One of the challenges they, they do mention is the European uh, Supplied Service Module. They looked at EM-2 and they identified the biggest, biggest constraint, in their eyes anyway, is the environmental control and life support system. Um, it will not be full up tested until, really, it flies on EM-2. Um, now, with all due respect, there are substantial parts of the system, that, and, and the report does concede this, that have already been kind of flying on the International Space Station, and this is something, too, that uh, Bill Gerstenmeier also is very, very quick to remind folks. And it does list the fact that, you know, the thermal control pumps, heat exchangers, radiators, the gas containment containment delivery systems, they have either flown or being tested currently on the space station or will be uh, tested significantly on EM-1. However, they're saying that the full complete test of the environmental and life support system will be during EM-2 with crew aboard, and the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel, which is uh, a NASA critter, has basically said, uh, dude, that's not really a, a good thing to do. In fact, one of the, um, the, I believe, one of the features for EM-2 is that uh, for the first um, a day or so, that the crew stay in a, a high orbit around the Earth um, to uh, just make sure things are kind of, you know, 
going okay, and if there is something kind of spooky going on to come back. Um, but it does name some other challenges uh, that that's going on too. But one of the things that they're also saying as well is for the space station, and they really, really want to see it fully utilized because they really the, the IG is really, really impressed excuse me, with the science that the ISS is, del is delivering. But um, it also says that NASA is not going to be in a position to maximize the amount of crew time on the station until that seventh crew member is brought on board, and that's contingent on how uh, commercial crew goes. There's other things, too, that we can go into, but because of time constraints, I can't. But if again, if you want to go ahead and flip through this, it's available if you, uh, if you just look up the, uh, go to the NASA um, IG uh, website. Again, it's 33 pages. Take a look at it, but it does name some significant, significant problems that the agency is going to have. And these are the things that the new NASA administrator is going to have to address. I'll be honest, when it comes to your question of who's going to win, I think in this case, everybody loses because you're either losing out on ISS science or you're losing out on the potential for SLS. Or in this case, it sounds like because, you know, the way that things have operated in the past, it sounds like they're just going to cut both a little bit. So uh, I think either way, this is going to be a lose-lose situation the farther this gets pushed back. Yeah, sure. And that, that's un my unfortunate thought, too. I mean, um, I don't see any more money being allocated to NASA by any stretch of the imagination with this particular administration or with this particular Congress. I think what NASA's got is what it's got, and it's going to have to make do with that. I don't see any significant um, revamping. I don't see any significant budget increases. In fact, I, I see you know budget cuts in the future. So it, it's, it's just going to be one heck of a balancing act that the, the agency is going to have. You know, you have to wonder, too, is, is NASA getting enough funds commensurate with, with its portfolio? Probably not. But what do you cut out of the NASA portfolio? I mean, they've, they've tried already, and, uh, you know, obviously they were going to cut some of the education department, and that's not happening anymore, and, you know. And honestly, I don't think it's just this administration. I think the way that space is lately and the way things are going right now, I don't think there's any administration, Democratic, Republican, or other, that would be funding space the way it needs to be or the way NASA should be, you know, going back Apollo era, unless China decides to start a second space race or India or someone else. Uh, I don't see it happening. Sorry to be blunt. This program has been funded that way since I can remember. Um, I mean, I grew up, I was a child of Apollo. And I, you know, the days of, of getting the the 4% of of the national budget are over. They're, those those days are, are gone. We will never have that kind of commitment unless, as you said, um, something really, really happens to go ahead and energize us once more. The reality is, um, I mean, all through the 80s, this has been, been our problem. All through the 90s, this was our problem. It will continue to be our problem. And it, it's, it, it's a question of, are we asking this agency to do too much, w given the fact that we're not going to fund it the way it needs to be funded. I don't know if we're asking it to do too much. I just think we're expecting too much out of it, given that current funding. Well, yeah, but again, that 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 I guess that that's an interesting way of looking at it. But it 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 just begs the same question: What do you get rid of? How do you go ahead and make sure that certain programs don't falter and die uh, without 
kind of cutting off some other program that, by the way, is just as is um, well intentioned and just as needed as, say, SLS, Orion, space station, commercial crew, commercial cargo. Those things too could be actually leveraged in the whole, you know, deep space ar- architecture going going back and forth to the moon. So what do you do? How do you go ahead and find a way to to kind of work around all of this? And and we haven't found that way yet. I know uh, we've talked about our upcoming 2018 launches and uh, where we might go next year to bring you guys some of the best coverage. And one of those was possibly out to Vandenberg Air Force Base for the Mars InSight launch, uh, which is currently scheduled for 2018. Uh, The Mars InSight mission is a lander, not a rover. Uh, and there was a recent campaign to get your name on board the Mars InSight spacecraft. I believe we mentioned it on the show. Uh, I know, Gene, at least you and I have some names on there, and uh, including our own, and uh, apparently we're among millions of others who decided to join in on this, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's classes of school kids on board, board on this thing. I know that my niece and nephews are on board. Uh, posthumously, I have you know my my dad and my sister on board. Bill Shatner is one of the names on board. Uh, there are folks that actually worked on on the project that are on that are on board. Um, you're there, I'm sure. You know, s- most of this audience is on board, and yeah, you're sharing the ride with um, two lovebirds. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but in terms of total number of people, I believe in addition to all of that, it totaled what was it over two million people that joined in? Two point four million that jumped on board, that jumped on board Insight. So the Insight lander is going to go ahead and study the crust of uh, of of the red planet with a heck of a lot of help on board. But uh, there's some really some good significant people, and who knows, maybe the 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 first person that went to that is going to go ahead and set foot on Mars is on that that little chip that is going to uh, to Mars via uh, Insight. So you know, fingers crossed, and hopefully that that is the case. Hopefully you got your name on board. If you didn't, unfortunately the window was closed for that. But there is still another opportunity to get your name in space, or at least name something in space. If you're not aware, it was um, kids that named. Some of the rovers, especially Curiosity, it was uh, members of the public that named the asteroid Bennu that OSIRIS-REx went to. And, uh, well, now there's a uh, Kuiper Belt object that needs a name, right, Gene? Yes, sir. This is um, the uh, the object that uh, the New Horizons spacecraft, this is its, uh, its secondary mission, its secondary objective, and on New Year's Day of uh, 2019, and we're hoping to be there for that, it will go ahead and fly past a uh, Kuiper Belt object called uh, Open Parentheses, and hang in there with me, folks. Four eight six nine five eight close paren two thousand fourteen mu six nine rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> yes, now you know why NASA is looking for a proper name for this particular object or a nickname for this object. So. It could kind of roll off the tongue when you're talking to us press types about what what you're 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 seeing. Again, this is a binary object that uh, that New Horizons is going to make a quick flyby by from. 
if you want, you can go to the NASA website and uh, uh, try to suggest a name. I believe the the website to go to is frontierworlds.seti.org, uh, or just go over to the NASA website and uh, and and click on the link there. Um, the campaign is going to close at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Time, on December 1st. So it's November 8th as we record this. So you got some time uh, to go ahead and, and uh, try to go ahead and, and make, uh, make some planetary history and, uh, and get your name in. Uh, you'll, you'll have a, uh, a, good, uh, a good story to go ahead and tell everybody because you've named this particular object that, uh, that folks are going to call this thing as um, uh, this, this particular uh, Kuiper Belt object as, uh, as, as New Horizons closes in on its secondary objective. And I'll throw something in to encourage people that it's not a trivial thing because I vividly remember meeting the, at the time, a young woman who was 12 years old who named Curiosity. Uh, her name is Clara Ma, and uh, she's from Kansas. And she's the one who won that competition for the uh, Mars Science Laboratory named Curiosity Nowadays. And... Uh, a few years ago, there was a blog and a JPL website where it referred to her being a sophomore in high school. So, you know, put that in your resume someday, young people, that you named something important, something significant, and really something permanent. Exactly. And make sure that uh, when you give your whole press conference with the naming that you make sure that you mention you heard it here on Talking Space. Because I know someone out there in our audience has the capability to come up with an amazing name. All right, now, before we go, unfortunately, we do have to mention some very sad news. Uh, this past Monday, on the 6th, we lost another NASA legend. Richard Dick Gordon, veteran of Gemini 11, and the command module pilot for Apollo 12. So one of very few people to actually go around the moon. One of the first people to do spacewalks before they finally perfected the technique. And uh, an all-around funny really smart intelligent guy who uh, had a great career at nasa and onward unfortunately passed away at the age of 88 as we go along we're losing some of these amazing legends but i think the most important thing is not just the fact that we're losing the legends but we're losing some of these stories and uh, i have to say i met him many times and once the atlantis opening i met him a few times at space fest and uh looking back through the pictures from space fest just there's a photo of him and I just staring at each other laughing. I don't remember what he was laughing about, but I just remember he was funny, quite raunchy. Um, I do remember just laughing up a storm and him, you know, one of the last Space Fests, uh, talking with Gene Cernan and the two of them just poking fun at each other and laughing. And it's a shame. It's a sad loss. And he was an amazing man who will be missed. Yes, yeah, Sawyer, he was, he just had a very, you know, self-deprecating kind of humor about him too he didn't one of the things that i i loved the the apollo 12 crew in in particular was that none of them took themselves seriously they took the job extraordinarily seriously but they never took themselves seriously and uh apollo 12 was was, was an interesting mission because of that um, this wasn't a, a trip to the moon. It was like three guys on a very, very long and extended camping trip. Three dear good friends, and you know, just just 
literally laughing their way to the lunar surface. One of the things, too, that uh, Dick Gordon did while he was there is he had to, because this was something Mike Collins couldn't do, was to try to find the lamb when it was uh, right near uh, Snowman Crater, uh, because the, the, the idea for Apollo 12 was to go ahead and do a pinpoint landing. And uh, one of the things uh, Gordon was tasked with was to try to find the uh, the lamb on the moon, and he was the first one to do to do that. He was one of the fir- first ones to go ahead and prove that it was possible to find a landing site from from orbit. Um, he was supposed to command uh, the actual final Apollo mission, Apollo twenty, but uh, because of budget cuts, that was uh, not to be. But uh, again, just uh, as 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 you pointed out, sort just an extraordinary human being, somebody that you know you get the idea had a had a big heart, and uh, it 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 was sad to to hear him uh, leave us. But uh, hopefully. Tonight, somewhere, he's uh, going ahead, and uh, Pete Conrad was there to go ahead and say hi and say, "Heck, what what the heck took you so long?" And hopefully, they're they're cracking open a beer and in the great beyond and and enjoying some of the stories that that uh, they they were both able able to create together. It's it's kind of a but it's still kind of a sad occurrence, but a but a life well lived and somebody that has definitely made. An indelible mark on the history of spaceflight and the history of uh, history of humanity. Um, good tailwinds to you, sir, and uh, and thank you. And uh, I'm also just going to go ahead and very quickly uh, make a real fast observation too. Uh, Halloween also represents the anniversary of another individual that we lost, Michael Alsberry on board the uh, the Virgin Galactic uh, VSS Enterprise. So, again, condolences again to the family, and don't worry, we have not forgotten his sacrifice and what he hopefully will uh, will be able, his loss will go ahead and hopefully lead to bigger and better things in spaceflight. Very well said. And with that, that brings this super long episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, sir. And we warned you on the top. We had a really packed uh, packed episode. Hope you enjoyed it as much as uh, we did bringing, t- bringing it to you. And thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. It's always interesting, and it's good. Thanks. Thank you as well for joining us. And uh, we've got some great stuff coming up for you for the end of the year, some really cool interviews and uh, other news to cover. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.